Welcome to Tea with PILTG. I'm Paul Williams, co-founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group. Today, over a cup of honey lemon tea, we will be discussing how to launch a career in international criminal law with our special guest, Michael Scharf, who is the co-founder and managing director of PILPG and the interim co-dean of Case Western University Law School. We also have three dynamic young professionals, Orga, Carly, and Elizabeth. Why don't you three take a second or two and introduce yourselves, and then I will introduce Michael. Hi, I'm Orga. I'm getting my JD degree at Georgetown University Law Center and my Master's of Public Policy at Harvard University, John F. Kennedy School of Government. Last summer, I worked with the United Nations in Beirut, Lebanon, and prior to that, I worked with the Embassy of Haiti in Washington, D.C., and so I'm really interested in international criminal law, and I'm looking forward to hear what you have to say. Hi, I'm Carly. I'm getting my bachelor's degree in international relations at American University, and I have previous experience with STAND, the student-led movement to end mass atrocities. And I'm Elizabeth. I'm currently a student at Harvard Law School. Prior to that, I spent four years at the State Department in the Near Eastern Affairs Bureau, and I'm really excited to learn more about international criminal law. Great. This is going to be an exciting conversation. Let me start by telling you something about Michael. Michael Scharf, as I mentioned, is the co-founder and managing director of the Public International Law and Policy Group, and he heads PILPG's War Crimes Prosecution Practice Area. He is the co-interim dean at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and the director of their Frederick K. Cox International Law Center, where he founded their War Crimes Research Lab. In 2013, Michael taught Case Western's first massive online open course, or MOOC, called An Introduction to International Criminal Law, which attracted more than 20,000 attendees from over 135 countries. Michael is also the host of Talking Foreign Policy, a radio program broadcasted on Cleveland's NPR station. Michael has been involved extensively with major international criminal tribunals. During the first Bush and Clinton administrations, Michael served in the Office of the Legal Advisor at the U.S. Department of State, and in 1993, he was awarded the State Department's Meritorious Honor Award in relation to his role in the establishment of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. In 2004, Michael served as a member of the international team of experts that provided training to judges of the Iraqi High Tribunal, and in 2006, he led the first training session for investigative judges and prosecutors of the newly established UN-Cambodia Genocide Tribunal. Most recently, Michael headed a Blue Ribbon Committee that drafted a statute for a war crimes tribunal for Syrian atrocities. Michael is the author of over 70 scholarly articles and 17 books, and recently published Prosecuting Maritime Piracy with Cambridge University Press, which he co-edited with two fellow PILPGers. For all of Mike's amazing efforts, he's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. Okay, Michael, let me start with the first question. From your experience, are there specific qualities or traits that lend to a career in international criminal law? Well, thank you very much, Paul, for having me on this podcast, and it's also great to be with Orga and Carly and Elizabeth today. As far as traits go, I think you have to have a passion for both international law and criminal law. You have to know a lot about basic criminal law, and you also have to feel very strongly that international justice is important to building peace so that you can spend your life committed to that pursuit. 
what are the various roles that this field could have for a lawyer? It seems like much of the recruitment in the field of international criminal law is more for prosecutorial roles. And I'm wondering how does one go about defending alleged criminals and who does that now? Well, when I started out working at the State Department, as Paul mentioned, there weren't any international tribunals. Nuremberg had been 40 years in the past, and we developed the first modern international criminal tribunal, the Yugoslavia Tribunal. Now, since that time, there's been a proliferation of international tribunals and regional war crimes tribunals. So you had first the Yugoslavia Tribunal, then the Rwanda Tribunal, then the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the Cambodia Tribunal, and the Special Tribunal for Lebanon. You have the Permanent International Criminal Court. You've got regional courts like the Iraqi High Tribunal that prosecuted Saddam Hussein, the Uganda War Crimes Tribunal, and then you have piracy courts as well, which are applying not war crimes, but international criminal law principles. And they are in the Seychelles and Mauritius and Kenya. And then you've got domestic courts all over the world that are also prosecuting international criminals under universal jurisdiction. So you mentioned that there is lots of room for prosecutors. And in fact, one of the routes to get a job in this field is to become a prosecutor in a domestic jurisdiction, get some experience, and then apply. There are also lots of room for defense counsel, and there is now an international defense bar that has been created. And then there are these jobs for the judges, so they're legal officer jobs. There's also a registry, and then there are victims counsels. So there's four different areas that, of employment opportunities for lawyers in this field. I would say the best thing to do as a law student is to try to intern for one of the tribunals, either during the summer or if your school allows it, like Case Western does, during the semester. Because we've had at Case Western six of our students who've gone from internships to permanent jobs at international tribunals. We've had over 110 students intern at international tribunals. And all over the world, other schools are having the same experience. Really, in the field of international law generally, internships is the secret doorway. And even if you don't get a job immediately from your internship into international tribunal, when you go and you interview for a law firm job or an NGO job and you tell them about the experience you had on your internship, it's going to make for a great interview and then two steps down the line you'll be in a good position to get a job in international criminal law. So Paul is always reminding us to keep track of the key players in the field that we want to enter. Who do you think the key players are in this field? Who should we be following? So for a while, there were all these ad hoc tribunals, and then they created the Permanent International Criminal Court. And right now, I think the key players are working for that tribunal. And the goal was that this tribunal would do all of what the international ad hoc tribunals did around the world. Now, I don't think that that's going to be the long-term prospects for the ICC, because what we've realized that the ICC can only take on three or four defendants, or cases at most, per country. And there are countries where international justice cries out for many more, tens or even hundreds of defendants. So I think we're going to see the emergence, or the re-emergence, I should say, of ad hoc tribunals. So what you do is you keep your eye open. And every, uh, this is really an unfortunate truth about international relations, but about every year there's a war crime situation or a genocidal situation or crimes against humanity being committed somewhere. And every couple of years, the UN Security Council or regional organizations will get together and say, we need a new court to deal with this. And, and we see this all the time. So you guys just be patient. There will be many more courts in your lifetime, and you want to be proactive. So when those courts are created, 
reach out to the new prosecutor. Tell them that you're somebody who's done internships, who's done work in the field, who's written law review articles about these issues when they were in school or outside of school, and somebody who has some experience either as a defense counsel or prosecutor or even as a litigator doing mass litigation. And there will be many opportunities, not just at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, but all over the place. And I should say, tribunals also tend to linger on much longer than we think. There are still cases before the Yugoslavia Tribunal that was created in 1995. Um, there are still, well actually 93 was created, its first case started in 95, but there's still cases at the Rwanda Tribunal and its residual mechanism and in its appeals and the Special Tribunal for Lebanon just got an extension for three more years. So even those old ad hocs that we thought were going to be long gone, they're still hiring. In terms of law students who want to break into the field, you mentioned interning, which I imagine would be really valuable, but are there other skills we should be looking to build in law school? Are there classes or other types of training you recommend we seek out as students? So many schools now are offering international criminal law or international humanitarian law as specialty courses in law school. That was not the case back when Paul and I were in law school. So. First of all, take those courses. Um, get on a law journal. There are many. There are more precedents coming out of the international tribunals than anywhere else in international law, including the, the World Trade Organization or anything. So there's constant fuel for great law review articles. So when you're on a law review, write a student note about some of these controversial cases that are always coming out. And one of the things with so many ad hoc tribunals and even within tribunals is that they keep having conflicting precedents. So it's, it's really good grist for writing an article. And writing an article about something sends a signal that you're becoming an expert in the field and that you're somebody that they may want to hire because of your interest and your knowledge. Again, for international criminal law, you have to have criminal law background. So take all those criminal law cases, classes that you can take in law school. And then if you can get out in the job market and become a public defender or a defense counsel or a prosecutor, that's going to be really good experience for a couple of years. And if you've already done an internship while you're in law school and you've kept in touch with the people at the tribunal, that will likely open doors for you. Do most young lawyers entering the field of international criminal law do so after gaining significant experience in domestic criminal law? And if so, how easy or difficult is it for them to transition from a career in domestic criminal law to a career in international yeah. criminal law? I mean, law? I think the conventional wisdom is that you should have experience. And experience as a prosecutor or a public defender or, and here's another place I haven't mentioned yet, but really good experience as a JAG attorney in one of the branches of the U.S. military or foreign military is great training. And it's something that will make you very attractive in the hiring process. But there are people who do internships and just wow their supervisors and then get jobs directly through their internships. And so, you know, don't count that out. That's not in the ordinary course of events, but I know many people who've gone straight from an internship to a permanent job. So internships are definitely the first step in that road. On a broader scale, I'm wondering what the demographic of lawyers is in the field. Are most lawyers from the US and Europe? And if so, do you think that's a problem? So what I've learned is that almost all of these tribunals conduct their proceedings in English. Some of them also do it in French. And if you're a Russian speaker or 
German speaker or a Dutch speaker or a Chinese speaker, you're kind of out of luck. So English-speaking lawyers have a huge advantage because they want people who are great writers and who are articulate in their language. For that reason, if you look at the demographics of people who have jobs in the international tribunals, they're Canadians, they're Brits, they're Australians, and they're Americans. Even at the International Criminal Court, where the United States is not a party, there are a ton of American lawyers that have jobs up and down the prosecutor's office, the defense counsel, the victim's counsel, and the registry. Looking towards the future, you mentioned ad hoc tribunals, but are there other areas of international law that you see growing, and are there any there any areas that you see shrinking or major shifts in the field that are that are coming up on the horizon? Yeah, so before these tribunals were around, international criminal law was mostly about extradition, mutual legal assistance, drug trafficking, and terrorism. Guess what? Those four things are still really, really big areas of law. So if you wanted to work in the Department of Justice, they have a special office called the Office of International Affairs that does work on extradition and mutual legal assistance. If you wanted to work as an assistant U.S. attorney or even as a prosecutor at the state level, you're going to have international drug cases. You may even have international terrorism cases. The terrorism laws that are federal mean that most of the big federal terrorism cases, and they usually have the death penalty, are in U.S. federal court. So you could get into that if you go into the Attorney General's Honors Program through Maine Justice or by interning and possibly at some point becoming an assistant U.S. attorney. You can have an entire career where you're doing a lot of work that's international criminal law. Terrorism is one of the major areas of international criminal law in the United States and worldwide. Piracy is another area that's really a growth area. There are 20 countries that have prosecuted 1,000 pirates in the last five years, and there's 1,000 more pirates that are about to be prosecuted, and piracy isn't going away. And piracy raises many of the same issues as the war crimes cases and the kinds of things that I think attract people to this field. How do you envision uh, enforcement of international law changing over the next half century? So, you know, originally it was all enforced domestically, and now we have these international tribunals, but other than the ones that are created by the Security Council, there really isn't international enforcement. It's always domestic cooperation, and it's voluntary. And so if you look, for example, at the case of al-Bashir, who's been indicted by the International Criminal Court for genocide in Darfur, he has been hopscotching around Africa and even Asia, and nobody has yet arrested him. And just very recently, he went down to South Africa, and the South African authorities allowed him to leave the country without arresting him, and very soon afterwards, the South African High Court said that you have violated your responsibilities under the law of South Africa and international law by not arresting him. So basically, domestic cooperation is absolutely key to international criminal law enforcement, and that's the weakness also in the field. I was really interested by what you said about piracy laws. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that fits into international criminal law? Sure. So piracy used to be something that was way in the past, and you saw movies like about Johnny Depp, the Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, it was something that happened 300 years ago. But it returned because of the failed state of Somalia, and the business model of the pirates was so successful that it spread to the west coast of Africa as well. So there have literally been a 1,000 people that have been hijacked 
held for ransom, and often these cases, the ransom payments are made and they've been released. Sometimes they've been killed. We've seen recent movies like Captain Phillips that show you what a modern-day Somalia pirate is like. They are costing the world's trade over $12 billion a year. So it's important enough that a lot of countries right now have put an uh, armada of warships off the coast of Somalia to try to apprehend the pirates. But they're not going to stay there for long, especially when they're being sidetracked from Syria and Yemen and other kinds of conflicts in the area. And as they leave, which they eventually will, because it's too expensive to maintain them forever, the piracy will come back. And already there are reports the piracy is on the rise once again. As long as the pirates are out there and they're a scourge to international shipping and international peace, there's going to have to be prosecutions of the pirates. And eventually they're going to stop prosecuting the low-level pirate foot soldiers and start getting the financiers and the kingpin pirates who are recruiting all sorts of pirates, including a lot of children. And so I mean, half the pirates now are, are child pirates, which is a whole other major issue. And, and so the piracy threat is such an important one that a lot of money is going into piracy prosecution. The UN has been paying to support prosecutions in regional piracy courts in the Seychelles, in Mauritius, in Kenya, and then there's 20 other countries that have been prosecuting, including the United States. Now, I should mention that PILPG has a high-level piracy working group that has sent teams out to those countries that are prosecuting the pirates and have created over 60 memorandum on legal issues that are novel, that are being litigated for the first time ever. And so we were so effective that the United Nations asked us to do a presentation on how do you respond to the threat of child piracy at the Copenhagen meeting of the UN contact group on Somalia pirates. And that was a, a really heady time for PILPG because the UN asked us to be sharing what we've shared with our clients to the entire world community at the UN. What do you think young people can bring to this field? For example, do you think the use of technology and social media will create changes in the field? Absolutely, and here's an example. Young people told Mark Ellis, who is um, a very good friend of PILPG and the executive director of the International Law Institute, that they ought to have an app on cell phones to capture footage of atrocities as they occur. And the young people who knew all about this, because Mark didn't, he's kind of a, you know, of our generation, somewhat Luddite-ish, <laughs> um, they told him, you know, what the app ought to be. And so it needs to be something that can give you the coordinates, ge you know, geographic, that can tell you who else has a cell phone in the area so that you can find witnesses, that you can push a button and will be immediately wiped clean from your cell phone, but at the same time it will be downloaded automatically through a satellite system to the International Law Institute's headquarters where they can use it, and it should be self-authenticating in court. So young people came up with this idea, and they launched this just this year, and I think that's going to revolutionize the documentation of war crimes cases. Because for a long time, you know, they had cell phone videos and nobody knew exactly when or where they were taken, and you couldn't use them in court. Now, with everybody using cell phones in these countries that are experiencing conflict, there's going to be really good evidence, not just documents and not just witness testimony, but video evidence that will be usable in court. That's just one example. But I, I think that your generation is going to revolutionize the way we fight international crime. 
and it is going to make it much more effective. So I'm just excited to find out about the next innovations. I'm, I'm wearing my Apple Watch, <laughs> trying to keep up with all of you guys. But yeah, that that's absolutely going to be very important in, for the evolution of international criminal law enforcement. Earlier you mentioned al-Bashir skipping around uh, different countries in Africa in order to avoid an arrest warrant handed out by the International Criminal Court. I've been seeing a lot of debate between the African Union and the International Criminal Court over the prosecution of war criminals. Uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the African Union's refusal to comply with uh, ICC prosecution. I think a lot of times it's easier to be a Monday morning quarterback, which in, in America is a way of saying that um, hindsight is twenty twenty. But there are things I think that the International Criminal Court would rather have not done looking back. And I think it, it was a little bit more aggressive in its early years than it probably should have been because historically when you have a new international organization in its fledgling years it's very cautious and careful and usually about year 50 it starts to get more robust and it really takes that much time think about the international court of justice for example Um, but the icc under luis moreno ocampo was very aggressive so they they went out and indicted people who there was almost no chance they were going to be able to get custody over and they did it mostly in Africa. Most of their cases were in Africa. They could have maybe paced themselves and looked out for cases in Asia, Afghanistan, Latin America, so that it didn't look like a court that was just targeting Africa. So ultimately what happened were two things as a result of this. One is the African countries felt like they were being targeted and that this was not the International Criminal Court, but this was the European Court to Prosecute Africans. And that gave the African countries a bad taste, and they slowly lost their interest in the ICC. And right now, the relationship's very tense between countries like Kenya and and other countries in Africa and the ICC. The second thing is because they aggressively went after heads of state in Kenya and in the Sudan, it sent a signal that the court was really being aggressive but didn't have the wherewithal to enforce its arrest warrants. And so it made the court look really weak. And then, of course, the court went to the Security Council because in the case of al-Bashir, it was the Security Council that referred the case. And the Security Council has done nothing. And so it hasn't backed up the court, and it makes the court look even weaker. So I think if you rewound time, you probably wouldn't have done some of that very aggressive actions in the early years of the court. Now, of course, on the other side is how can the court turn a blind eye to some of the worst atrocities in the world? But international criminal law and institutions, you know, they live in a political milieu. And if they're not effective and not successful, then they are weakened. And so it's international diplomacy and politics, and you have to have strong support, and you have to be diplomatic, and you have to be smart. And there were some moves that I wouldn't think were as smart as they could have been in the early years of the court. What are your thoughts on the crime of aggression? Do you think that ICC state parties will activate this jurisdiction, and should they? So, you know, the crime of aggression is what was known at Nuremberg as the crime against peace. And at the time of Nuremberg, Robert Jackson, who had been the chief justice, reported to the president that the most important thing they did at Nuremberg was outlawed aggressive war. Now, after Nuremberg, when they created the Yugoslavia Tribunal, and I was there during those negotiations, they said, let's not have this crime of aggression because the U.S. and Russia and other countries are constantly being claimed, being accused of committing aggressive acts all over the world, and we don't want to constantly be 
defending ourselves before an international court. But the court, as a compromise, left in its statute the possibility of adding the crime of aggression. And in 2010, in Kampala, at a review conference that I and, and some of our colleagues were at, they added the crime of aggression, they came up with a definition, they came up with a triggering mechanism, and they said that it would start if they got 60 ratifications. Now, interestingly, they're getting close to that. So my prediction is there will be a crime of aggression that is part of the ICC's statute, and it will apply to the 60 countries that ratify. According to its terms, it won't apply to the other parties of the ICC unless the Security Council refers a case of aggression. Now, it's possible that in the coming years the Security Council will do that, and it's not going to be against Russia for you know, its aggressive acts in the Crimea because Russia has a veto in the Security Council, nor is it going to be about the United States or Israel, who the United States can protect with our use of the veto. But it's, it's possible that there will be a case where the Security Council refers, and then maybe the ICC will prosecute. Very unlikely that among the 60 other countries there will be a case involving aggression. You're basically talking about the 60 most peaceful countries in the world. The United States obviously is going to stay out of that and won't be subject to it. I think symbolically it's good that they've resurrected the crime of aggression. They basically say it is a crime to invade another country if you don't have authorization by the Security Council and it's not in self-defense. So be really cautious and, and don't just do that. But on the other hand, it's caused a lot of concerns to the United States because there are places we want to use humanitarian intervention or places where um, we think that we have a self-defense argument, but the rest of the world doesn't necessarily think so. And right now, I'd say that the biggest place where both of those things are happening is in Syria. So crime of aggression, it will stay controversial, but symbolically, it's a good thing that it's moving along. What do you think about the idea of having regional criminal courts in addition to or in place of the ICC? So years ago, I was a big advocate of the let's have a permanent international criminal court. It will solve our problems of political exhaustion every time a new situation comes about. Um, we'll have a court in place that's ready to work. In fact, a one-size-fits-all solution has never worked for anything in the international community. And so I've come to the belief that you need to have all kinds of international criminal law mechanisms. Sometimes truth commissions are the, the best approach. Sometimes domestic courts. Sometimes domestic courts with international assistance, which could be called internationalized domestic courts. They could even have international judges sitting side by side with the domestic judges, or they could have international experts like PILPG going in and helping to train the judges, as we did not as successfully as I would have liked in the Iraqi high court situation in the trial of Saddam Hussein. There's going to be ad hoc regional courts. There may even be ad hoc tribunals created by the Security Council in the future. Most people look at the ICC and they realize it has its place, it's kind of successful, but it's also huge and unwieldy and we're going to need to supplement it. And so I, I do think there's a pause right now to allow the ICC to sort of bloom and, and get its footing, but very soon we're going to see a return to all kinds of ad hoc responses. And that's also an avenue of opportunity for all of you guys who want to get a job in the field. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast with Michael Scharf. If you would like to know more about our war crimes prosecution practice area or our practice areas in peace negotiations or post-conflict constitutions, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or on our website at pilpg.org. If you have a tea or a discussion suggestion, 
let us know on Twitter at hashtag Tea with PILPG. Until next time, this is Tea with PILPG, brewing excellence around the world. <laughs>